Well, believe it or not, we have just three weeks left in our journey through Acts. We've been here since, I think it's September 11th or September 4th of last year. Uh, we have just three weeks left in this little mini-series. Um, this changes everything we launched on Easter that's coming from uh, the book of Acts. We've been saying this phrase uh, week after week. Uh, this will be the third week of it. This changes everything. And if you think about it, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. Like, really? Like, everything, every single thing that Jesus and his resurrection should change all of it? Uh, you know, often when we use words like everything, everywhere, everyone, uh, phrases like all the time, always, never, uh, we seldom truly mean all the time, or everywhere, or everything. We, we, we use a form of speech we call hyperbole. It's kind of a fun word to say, but it's exaggeration that's intended to bring um, an expression of, of passion and feeling. Like, we want to make a point, so we say, everyone does this, or everything is this way, or you never do that. I mean, think about the conversation that maybe some of you have had with children or grandchildren. Hey, mom, hey, dad, hey, grandma, hey, grandpa, everyone at school has a cell phone. Well, it's likely you could go to the school and find multiple people that don't have a cell phone. Or, or everyone, I got this phone call this year from, from our child at college. Everybody else's parents send them money. <laughs> oh, well, I'm guessing I could find some students whose parents don't send them money. But, but what is he trying to do? He's trying to convey a point that He's trying to land a point with emphasis, with passion, with, 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 with feeling. Well, what happens when you have a conversation with someone, they say, you never listen to me. Again, you can probably find examples of times when they did listen to you, but you're trying to make a point. Always, never, everywhere, everyone, all the time, everything. So I think it begs the question, we could see a statement like this changes everything, and some might presume that we're, we're just simply using hyperbole. We're trying to say that Jesus changes a lot of things in your life, but, but he doesn't really change everything. And I think it's important to make a distinction. When we say this, Jesus and his resurrection change everything, we literally mean everything. We are not using hyperbole. We are saying that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, wants to, can, and should change every aspect of our lives. He wants to change how we carry ourselves in the workplace and how we do our job. He wants to change how we drive our car and we handle ourselves in traffic. He wants to change how we treat the people that are in our lives, our friends, our family, our neighbors. He wants to change how you treat your body. He wants to change how you treat other people's bodies. He wants to change our understanding of human sexuality and he wants to understand our enjoyment of human sexuality. He wants to change how you handle yourself at the prom, at the after prom, and after the after prom. He wants to change everything about how you handle yourself at a graduation, at a party, at a wedding. He wants to change everything. There's no part of your life that he doesn't want to change. There's no part of my life that he doesn't want to change. He wants to have control over everything because he knows what is best for us. He knows the order for which his, his heavenly father created the world and the pattern for which he made it. And he wants us to follow that. That when we say this changes everything, we mean everything. Now that can be overwhelming. 
Uh, you may feel that way. You may say, well, wait a second. Like, if there's no part of my life that Jesus doesn't want, how, how do I even begin to allow him to pattern my life after his? And what I hope you'll come to understand that, that this, isn't, this shouldn't be overwhelming. It should be an invitation. I love how Paul writes about it in one of his letters, and I'm drawing a blank right now on which letter it is. He says that we should work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. That it's this process of being made more and more into the image of Christ as his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It's this picture of renovation and remodel. Um, if, if you own a home, you know that owning a home means continual work. Uh, we bought a new home, uh, newly constructed, first people to ever live in it in 2017. And guess what? There's ongoing work. If I don't continue to maintain the yard, it grows up like a jungle. If I don't change the toilet flapper when it leaks, guess what? I'm gonna have a high water bill. Eventually, in probably 20 years, we're gonna have to you know, get a new roof. Like, there's always going to be something that has to be done, something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be replaced, something that needs to be improved. And as followers of Jesus, his Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he continues to help us on this journey. It's an invitation to be made more and more like him. But Jesus does want to change Everything, And in this series, we're just trying to explore what that looks like. Easter Sunday, Jesus changes everything about our past, our present, and our future. Last week, we looked into the conversion of Saul, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 again today, where, where we learn that, that Jesus changes everything by helping us see him clearly. When we see him clearly, he can change everything. When we see that he truly is full of grace and truth, it changes everything for our experience in this life. Jesus changes everything. So if you have your Bibles, find Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be there again. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, Luke does something here in Acts chapter 9. He has this historical account of uh, how Jesus was moving through this community of disciples and the Holy Spirit was stirring them, the change that was taking place in lives and in the world. And he's kind of taken this break from Peter. That, that incredible message on the day of Pentecost and what we see in um, wise men and spirit-filled men being called to help out so the apostles could concentrate on preaching in the word. And he kind of took this break to give us this sermon from, from Stephen. And following Stephen's message, we get introduced to Saul. We learn that when Stephen was killed and persecution broke out against the whole church, that the church was scattered. And then Luke kind of makes his point of attention during that season uh, after uh, Acts chapter 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul. And, and we read that in, in Saul's conversion in, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. But here in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, we're going to be in 32 to 43 today, he turns his attention back to what Peter is doing. Um, it says in verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. So Peter is out doing what the disciples needed to do. They needed to go and encourage these believers who were scattered. He's traveling, he's encouraging, he's equipping, he's probably preaching and proclaiming, checking in on these believers who've been scattered. And look at what happens when he comes to Lydda, verses 33 to 35. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years years. So when Peter comes into Lydda, he finds Aeneas. Now, we don't know. Um, many people presume that Aeneas was already a believer. Uh, we certainly know that after this he is because it's in the name of Jesus Christ that he is commanded uh, to take up his mat and he is healed. 
But he's not been able to walk for eight years, and Peter sees him, and he calls out to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And Aeneas responds immediately. Aeneas got up. And look at what happens. God will use healings to draw people to himself. Verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So Paul comes, Paul, sorry, Peter comes into Lydda. He heals Aeneas. We see the power of God at work in the miracle. We see the power of God at work to draw people to himself. Well, word travels that Peter is in Lydda and people that are going through a tragedy in Joppa send for him. Look at verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. I probably would stick with Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became ill and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Uh, That's an important statement. Uh, Some might say, well, what if Tabitha was only sleeping, or what if she had a low pulse, or what if she had shallow breathing? Maybe they just missed uh, that she wasn't yet fully dead. Well, the fact that people had been around her and caring for her and washed her body would have given them more than ample time to discover that she wasn't fully dead. This is a statement Luke is helping us see. Tabitha is, is, is as dead as, as dead can be. Verse 38, Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. This scene may feel foreign at first glance, but but just think about how we grieve over people. When when you learn of the death of a loved one, uh, don't people gather? Uh, Don't you start to share stories? And so as Peter shows up, here are these grieving widows, and they just want to talk about Tabitha about Dorcas's life. And so they're showing him the clothes that she's made, probably the clothes that they're wearing, the robes that she's made. They're just reminiscing about her life. And Peter's there listening with incredible compassion. But the moment comes when he's going to do something different. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. We don't know exactly what Peter prayed, but he turns and he trusts God in this moment. And it says he turned towards the dead woman and he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. When we read these words, they are nothing short of incredible and spectacular, that a man who'd been paralyzed for eight years is healed and able to walk. A woman who was dead is raised to life. What lessons are there in this passage for us to understand how Jesus changes everything? There are a few. One of them that sticks out to me is that we see how Jesus changes everything by giving his disciples a clear example and pattern to follow. I want you to look at Peter, specifically in this passage first. When Peter comes into Lydda, uh, he heals Aeneas. Jesus heals Aeneas through, through Peter's pronouncement. 
He comes into Joppa and he heals and raises Tabitha to life. These two miracles in Acts chapter 9 very closely resemble two miracles in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 5, you may recall the stories recorded in other Gospels of these friends who had um, their friend who was paralyzed. And they're trying to get him to Jesus. And they cannot get him to the house where Jesus is. And so they go up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and they lower the, the lame man, the paralyzed man, down into the home, and Jesus heals him. And Jesus tells that man, get up, take your mat, and go home. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is traveling, and he comes upon a funeral possession. I think it's outside the town of Nain, and there is a widow, and it's her son that has died. And he joins the funeral procession, and then he calls to that deceased young son and says, get up. And that man is raised to life. So we have these two stories in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, this biography of Jesus' life that introduces us to him and his ministry and who he is. And now we have Luke writing this historical record of the church, and he shows us that Peter participates in two very similar, not the same, but two very similar miracles. Why is that important? I just think at the surface level, it shows us that, that Peter is simply doing what he saw Jesus do. So, so when he, he walks in and he, he remembers being there when, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, what does he tell him? Almost the identical words. Aeneas, get up and take your mat, make your bed and go on. When, when he's in the room with Tabitha and he prays and he's remembering, what did Jesus say in these moments? Get up. And so he says, get up. And she is raised from the dead. Peter is simply doing what he saw Jesus do. Now, does this mean that if we were to follow the example of Jesus, that every one of us will heal the sick and raise the dead? That may not happen for you. That may not happen for me. But Jesus is still able to raise the sick, I mean, to heal the sick and raise the dead. What, what matters in this is that they are patterning their life after Jesus. Jesus changes everything because he gives us this model to follow. Tabitha does the same. Tabitha is, we have recorded of her by Luke, that she was a disciple. What's really cool about this account when you study it is that this is the only time in the entire New Testament when the feminine version of the word disciple is used. Most often the word methetes is used for both men and women, but here the feminine version is used. Luke is drawing attention to Tabitha, this disciple, this female disciple of Jesus. And when we look at her life, look at this summary statement. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Tabitha had committed her life to following Jesus and following his example. So one of the ways we see that Jesus changes everything for us, if you're a disciple of Jesus, he gives you an example. He gives you a pattern to follow. And I think that begs the question from us, what parts of our life have yet to be patterned after Jesus, what parts of your life, what is it that you do? What is it about how you operate? What is it about how you treat people that has yet to be patterned after the life of Jesus? And I just wanna pray over that for us in this moment. God, as we, as we read your word and we see Peter and Tabitha faithfully following your example, I just ask that you would draw to our minds 
uh, right now, the ways that we still need to pattern our lives after yours. Where are those places in our heart that need renovation? Where are those places in, in our worldview that need to be brought into submission under your view? God, where are we not in alignment with your truth? Where do we need to follow your example, whether it's at home or work, in our community, on our teams, in our schools? And will you just make that clear? God, help us to be people who allow you to change everything, every thought, every decision, every behavior, every word. And God, show us what that is and give us the boldness to follow you and allow you to shape and change us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Something else I see here is that Jesus changes everything for what I call the downtrodden, uh, the vulnerable, the hurting. Uh, you might even say the, the neglected. Uh, look at Tabitha for a moment. It says she was always doing good and helping who? The poor. She was helping the poor. Specifically for Tabitha, it seems that she had a ministry to the widows. Who's gathered in that room around her dead body are the widows, and they're proudly telling Peter, listen, Tabitha made me this. Look, look at what she gave me. What's really interesting about Luke is Luke has a way of highlighting widows in both Acts and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we see it here in, in Acts chapter 9. We, we see it in Acts chapter 6 when it was a pretty big deal that there were widows being neglected in the daily distribution of food and that there were intentional decisions made by the apostles to make sure that those widows were no longer neglected. And we can go into to Luke's gospel and we can see the story of that widow's son being raised to life. And you can go to Jesus teaching on prayer and he could have told a number of parables, but what does he choose to tell? A story about a vulnerable widow who goes before a judge and, and comes to him day and night. And he says, that's, that's how we need to persevere and be persistent in prayer. And think about the example that Jesus highlights near the end of his life as they're in the temple courts. He draws his disciples' attention to a widow who was placing all that she had in the offering box. Jesus shows incredible care and concern for the downtrodden, not just widows, but the lame, the poor. He invites children onto his lap. He has compassion for those who are, who are, are, are lost without a shepherd. Jesus has a heart for the downtrodden. Tabitha has a heart for the downtrodden. Something that God wants to change in us as we follow Jesus is to give us a heart for the most vulnerable to give us a heart for those who are truly oppressed, to give us a heart for those who are victims of injustice, to give us a heart for the poor. And so the question we have to reflect upon is do you and I have a heart for the downtrodden? Do you have a burden for the hurting and the vulnerable, the sick and the paralyzed and the lame, the brokenhearted? The man who founded World Vision uh, used to encourage people to pray, um, God, would you break my heart for the things that break yours. Is that a prayer that we're willing to pray? God, break my heart for what breaks yours. But we uphold the words of Jesus' half-brother, James, who tells us that religion, that God our Father finds pure and faultless, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Jesus wants to change everything, and one of those things is our heart for the hurting and for the downtrodden.
God, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see where there are hurting people around us. And Father, whether that hurt comes from some sort of economic difficulty, poverty, food insecurity, God, whether that hurt comes from a long-term illness and pain, God, whether that hurt comes because of the actions of others that leave children vulnerable or people abused and afflicted, would you give us a heart for the downtrodden? God, I pray that you would lead each of us to see how we right now, today, this week, can, can leverage our lives, our resources, our words, our prayers to come alongside the downtrodden, that you would change everything for us and how we see others in our world, especially the most vulnerable. Amen. And then finally, uh, another thing I see that Jesus wants to change, and it's probably the most obvious in this account, is that Jesus changes everything for us when it comes to how we understand disease and death. Aeneas was paralyzed for eight years, and he was healed through the power of God. Tabitha was dead, and she was raised to life. Jesus changed everything for Peter, for Aeneas, for Tabitha, and their understanding of disease and death. And Jesus should change everything for us. Now, what if we don't experience his healing in this life? What if our loved one isn't healed in this world, in this temporary world? What if our loved one isn't raised from the dead? How does Jesus still change everything for us when it comes to disease and death? And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do, I, I think it's important that we, we, we just lean into this for a moment. Do you understand? Do you realize? Do you recognize that Jesus still heals these aren't just stories for the first century. This isn't just something for, uh, you know, Jesus' disciples in his day. Jesus still heals. And I'm not talking about just like using medicine and, and, and treatments. There are stories that have happened all over our world since the time of Jesus, all the way up through our day today, right now, of people who have been healed. Uh, there's a powerful conference happening this week at Trader's Point. Um, Renew.org is having their Renew gathering. Well, they will have disciple makers from all over the world presenting about what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples and what God is doing around the world. And some of those presenters I've had personal conversations with and I've heard them present before. People like Shadonke from Sierra Leone, people like David Young who preaches in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And they have shared story after story of people who they have seen healed, healed, miraculously healed. God still does that. Jesus still does that. And maybe this is harder for you and I to accept. But you know that Jesus still raises the dead? He does. Now, that's one of the most rare miracles that we see even in the Gospels. And it's rare to this day, but Jesus still raises the dead. Audrey and I were at Rush Off Main in Brownsburg on Monday night. We were gathering with leaders of a local nonprofit who are striving to help people um, learn to follow Jesus and break down barriers. And, and the whole meeting was geared around how do we have better conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus um, to, to make bridges to helping them see who Jesus is. But in the midst of our conversation, one of the leaders of this nonprofit started sharing about a recent trip they were on to India. Uh, they sat on the board of the nonprofit. 
Uh, they took a team, some of them not even followers of Jesus, to film a documentary about this incredible movement of disciples, people coming to follow Jesus in India. And if you've not read stories of what's happening in India, um, we had just a couple years ago, Ajay Lal here from Central India uh, Mission, and he told stories of church plant after church plant, people coming to Jesus in a country that's gonna be one of the most populous or the most populous in the world just in a matter of years, there's this dynamic movement of people coming to faith in Jesus even under the threat of incredible persecution. So this one movement that this leader was going to examine has seen thousands of church planted annually. They have over the course of a couple of decades seen millions of people come to follow Jesus, faithfully follow Jesus. Not just like one time, accept Jesus, pray a prayer and you're on your own, but like people dynamically following Jesus. And when they got on the ground in India, they were told that just in the days before, there had been a young girl raised to life who had died. So this team goes into the home of the person who prayed over that young girl. And it's not just one man telling his story of how he prayed and how even reluctantly, he says he reluctantly prayed. Like he knew he needed to pray for her to be raised to life, but he didn't think God was gonna honor that prayer, but he prayed it anyway. But in that home is a gathering of people who all witness this young girl raised to life. And they're giving glory to God. As I shared when we even read the account, that God will use healing and resurrection to draw people to himself. And even in that room that day, as they were sharing the story of this young girl being raised to life, all these believers are weeping at the goodness of God. And one of the men responsible for filming this documentary series was not a follower of Jesus, and he's hearing it. And they're praying that he will be drawn to follow Jesus. But I share that story to help you see. I know even as I look out the room, some of you are like, yeah, right. But I hope you'll come to understand that Jesus still heals the sick and still, he still raises the dead. But it does beg a question, right? But what if he doesn't do that for you? What if he doesn't do that for me? Like, how does that change my perspective of disease and death if he's not healing the one that I love He's not raising my loved one from the dead. And for that, I think we need a more intentional understanding of disease and death and how it fits in with God's story. When God created the heavens and the earth, they were perfect. You can go to Genesis. There's an incredible, mighty, all-powerful God that we cannot even begin to fully understand who creates the heaven and the earth and he creates humankind in his image. And he desires for things, for, for reasons that we cannot begin to understand a relationship with us. He makes us in his image. He walks with humankind in the garden in the coolness of the day. Their hearts long for him. Their hearts like your heart long for eternity in relationship with the God that made you. And in that perfect world, there was no sin, no disease, and no death. But it's only when sin entered the world, disobedience to God and rebellion against God entered the world that disease and death followed. The creation was corrupted by sin and not just the physical earth and why it's hard to cultivate all the things and the curse to Adam and Eve. But even our bodies suffer disease and viruses and paralysis and colds and flus and cancers. And ultimately, because of sin, these earthly bodies will fail. This world, as it is, is temporary. And Jesus will return and make all things new. 
where disease and death and pain no longer have the final say. But because of sin, there is disease and death in this world, and everyone will die. We'll all be affected. And you even see that in Acts chapter 9. Aeneas was healed of his paralysis, but guess what? Aeneas is, is not still walking in our temporary world today. Eventually, he still died. Tabitha was raised to life, like Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. And guess what? None of them are still walking on this physical earth today. They still eventually died. The, the, the healing that Jesus brought in the temporary world the, the raising to life that Jesus brought in the temporary world, they were all just a taste of what is to come. Because of Jesus, there is victory. If not in this temporary world from sin, from, 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 from disease and death, there's victory from sin, from disease and death, there is in the world to come when he makes all things new. Jesus changes everything about how we understand disease and death. Yes, it robs us of loved ones today if there isn't healing and there isn't resurrection. But it doesn't get the final say. I love how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when that which is susceptible to decay has been clothed with the ability to resist decay. And the mortal, that which is susceptible to death with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus changes everything even when it comes to disease and death. Isn't it why we cling to the words of Revelation chapter 21, verse four, that when the new heaven and the new earth come, there will be no weeping and mourning and crying and pain, no more death. The old order of things will have passed away because he is making all things new. Jesus changes everything. He gives us the example to follow. He should change our heart towards the downtrodden. And he changes how we understand disease and death. I'm gonna pray again, and after that prayer, we're gonna hear a story about someone who's come to fully understand how Jesus gives victory and changes everything when it comes to disease and death. God, again, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the powerful witness of Peter and Aeneas and Tabitha. And God, I pray that as hard as it is to live in a world where there is disease and death, that would you give us the confidence that you still heal and you still raise the dead? Would you help us be people who pray boldly for those things? And God, even when they don't happen as we would want them in this world to trust in what is to come. God, we, we turn to you, we look to you, um, embolden us, uh, and help us allow you to change everything in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Uh, my name is Bob Berger. Um, I was raised in the church. Um, I really didn't come to know the gospel and what Jesus should mean to me uh, until I had some discussions with Harry Pitts, and then he baptized me here at LCC in 1992, and, and that's when uh, 
I had the full appreciation of how Jesus changes everything. And I was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, in July of 2015, and initially it was stage three. Um, and Jill and I went into our urologist, and uh, my dad had had prostate cancer when he was 83. And just some radiation, six months of hormone therapy, he's right as rain. So I thought, you know, how, how bad can it be? And I actually had people come up and say, well, if you're going to get cancer, prostate cancer is the kind you want to get. And I'm not sure I want to get any kind, but okay, so how, how bad could it be? And uh, so we get into the consultation um, after um, we had some uh, imaging and things like that. And, and the, the uh, urologist said, you know, your dad had prostate cancer recently, right? And I said, yeah, it wasn't, you know, just a wee little bout, right? And he said, well, this is not that. He said, this is scary cancer. This is life-threatening cancer. And we're like, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? And uh, so as he's talking, and we were in there for two hour, over two hours, uh, talking to him about the various treatments and, and, and our options and things, and and uh, I kind of zoned out, and, and Jill's just peppering him with questions. And he said, finally, he's like, hey, wait a minute. He goes, you need to understand something. He's talking to my wife. He says, he is going to die of this disease. And, uh, boy, a statement like that really grabs your attention. And <clears throat> so after we leave his office and we decided on surgery because... Um, my my prostate was 95% involved. I mean, it was just ate up uh, and was causing me pain and problems and stuff. So we decided to have it out, even though he said, you know, the last MRI showed a lot of pelvic involvement, and I'm not sure what good I'm going to do just taking this out. We said, well, take the mothership out. That just seemed the the uh, the logical thing to do. So. Um, we had opted for that, um, but we're sitting in the car uh, afterwards, you know, kind of crying a little bit and and saying, you know, well, what about our future plans? You know, what about our children? What, you know, what about all these things we had intended to do or, you know, what happens with all that? Um, you know, uh, it's how much money is this going to, you know, cancer is big business and uh, it's very expensive. Um, and so... We decided at that moment, said, you know, we're, it's here, and we're just going to have to deal with it, um, but we can't deal with it alone. Um, you know, we're, our, my faith has been tested, you know, sometimes during my life where, you know, I've been laid off or, or uh, you know, been out of work and things like that, but it's never been tested like that. And so um, we said, well... Um, you know, this is a test of, you know, who do we believe? Who are we trusting? Where's our hope? And uh, we um, decided at that moment to commit the disease of the Lord, said, Lord, this is yours. Um, and, you know, whatever happens through it, you know, use it how you will and for your glory. And so we'll, you know, we'll follow your lead, right? Because you're, uh, we're just throwing our trust and our dependence on you. And um, had surgery in September of 2015, 
and it was supposed to be four and a half hours and he was done in two and a half and that alarmed my wife of course she goes you know it's too soon we you know we uh there should be more and, and he came out um and talked to both of us once i had uh, recovered and stuff and he said i went in expecting to find a bunch of a bunch of lymph nodes around the prostate. He said, I only found one. He said, they were there on the MRI, but they're not there now. He goes, there's really no way to explain that. And I said, well, there is. A lot of people praying for me. And, and um, matter of fact, my wife and I were overwhelmed by the amount of people expressing their love. And, you know, we're praying for you and we're there for you. And what, what do you need? And it was just beautiful to see the church family um, react in that way you know you when you haven't felt that before it, it was awesome um and so uh you know we we just uh went on from there i it uh, it puts your priorities in perspective when you when you're faced with something like that and say well what's really important you know how much time have i wasted you know how much money have i wasted how much of my talents have I wasted doing things that have no eternal significance at all? And what should I be doing with my time and my talents and my treasures? And and so it, it puts those things in perspective for you. And so it kind of lifted me out of my malaise, um, you know, that I had fallen into and, and uh, developed a heart for, for talking to other people who had been diagnosed and, you know, uh, were terrified of the prospects. He said, okay, well, let's walk you through this. And, and you know, it, uh, there are definite things that we can do that will um, make the process easier. And, um, but uh, I remember one, one specific instance where, where um, you know, the Lord uh, really um, came to me and, and, and comforted me and, and, and uh, he said, you know, we're, we're in this together. And um, I had to go down to Sarasota, Florida in 2016 uh, for radiation, which is two and a half months worth of, of radiation, five days a week. And, and uh, Jill had come down for the first 10 days, but she had left. Um, the, the treatment was starting to really affect my body badly. Um, and they were desperately trying to find a, a cocktail of drugs that would make me feel better. So I'm in the Walmart parking lot, ready to go get these these drugs, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And and uh, so I popped in a CD. I didn't even know which one. I just reached in, popped in a CD, and the song started playing, sung by our own Shannon Smith, and uh, it was trading my sorrows. And so I listened to those words, and you know, I'm pressed but not crushed persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Um, you know, my, <clears throat> the joy of the Lord's going to be my strength. Um, you know, though uh, sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes with the morning and, and I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying them all down for the joy of the Lord. And so that's how Jesus has changed everything for me.